0: You know, it's an amazing thing to have had the opportunity to see him grow from somebody this high to somebody who has been such a blessing to my life and to this church. So thank God for Christian as well. Well, good morning, Cornerstone. So Christian and Todd have done us a great service by pressing home the truths given to the Thessalonian believers about how they and we ought to please God. And I'm, I'm such a, a linguist at heart, I guess. I don't know whether you realize that the word ought is related to the word owe and the word obligation. When, when Paul says that we ought to walk and please God, he is saying it's not a request. It is what we owe him. It is our obligation to him as our Lord and our deliverer. And during the past four Sundays in chapter four, we have been challenged first with the obligation to please God by living as set apart ones, particularly by stewarding our sexuality and holiness. Then in response to a question from the Thessalonians, we were urged to expand our practice of God-taught love for one another so that we can display God well even before outsiders. And finally, Paul provided new instruction about their real concern about believers who had died before Jesus' return. Jesus' own death and resurrection guarantees the resurrection of those believers who sleep in Jesus, and they will be raised up by him and return together with the believers who are still alive, sharing in the arrival in triumph of King Jesus. Therefore, we can grieve in hope, unlike unbelievers. For all of God's people will be with him forever. Amen? So now, Paul answers a related question from the Thessalonians. They were concerned about the return of the Lord. And here's what he says in verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So, Christian and Todd got to unpack the joyful hope of our resurrection, the undoing of the final enemy, death. And... I get to unpack the hope of the final judgment of God. Thanks a lot, guys. (laughs) No, really. My prayerful intention is to demonstrate from these verses that the day of the Lord is hopeful in surprising ways. So listen attentively for that. Human nature has not changed since the first century. When future events are discussed, People always want to know when. But before we can deal with the times and the seasons, we need to know what is the day of the Lord. That is the true focus of these verses, and we'll come back to when near the end. This expression, the day of the Lord, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament prophets whose writings were a major part of the Word of God that was then available to the Thessalonian church. Remember, the New Testament did not exist yet. And so what they were reading and what they were learning and what they were hearing as they gave themselves to the study of the Word of God, it was the Old Testament. And the prophets spoke a lot about the day of the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, it was called the day of Yahweh. But in our English Old Testament, the name Yahweh is always written how? As capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is actually important, and I will explain it in a little while. But before I do that, here's a good, simple working definition of the day of the lord the day of yahweh would be the time when god as the great divine warrior would go into battle against his enemies defeating them on behalf of his people a great example of this was the exodus from egypt the people of god were in bondage, they were in slavery, they were being oppressed and mistreated by the Egyptians. And when they left Egypt, God went into battle on their behalf and destroyed the entire Egyptian army on behalf of his people. Does that make sense? So that's what the day of the Lord is all about. We will return to the phrase on behalf of his people later. So wait for it. This triumphant action by God stems from his just character. And this is really significant. Listen to what the psalmist says about God's justice. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. in the the book of Job. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And way back in Genesis, when Abraham was talking with God, he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now let's pause for a moment to review our working definition of hope that you've been hearing through this series. Hope is the confident expectation in God's proven faithfulness in the past and the desire for the good God has promised in the future for those in Christ. That is what biblical hope is all about. And I love the fact that it reminds us that God has been faithful in the past and he also will be faithful to his promises in the future. The verses that we just read about God's righteousness and his justice are surprisingly hopeful. Righteousness and equity indicate that God always does what is right and fair. And he does what is good and right simply because he himself is good and right. He does not answer to any standard of justice outside of himself. Nobody can tell God, that's not fair. You're not doing the right thing. I mean, people try to do that. But he doesn't answer to any standard of justice outside of himself, but defines in himself everything that is good and right. Look at what Psalm 119 says about him. You are good and do good. Very simple, but very profound. Doing wickedly or perverting justice is utterly contrary to his unchanging character. But what about wrath, you might ask? Everyone's heard about the wrath of God. Everyone's heard about the day of wrath. As a matter of fact, it has a Latin name, dies irae. It just sounds frightening. It may seem to us to be the expression of explosive, uncontrolled anger. The wrath of God, by contrast, is the measured right reaction of his holy, good, and just character as expressed in his law when that law is violated this deserves to be repeated god's wrath is the right reaction of his holy good and just character as expressed in his law when that law is violated we tend to think of god's goodness as being something that's kind of the opposite of his wrath like Sometimes God is good and sometimes God is wrathful, but that's not how the Bible presents it. The Bible says that God is always good. You are good and you do good, but God's wrath is also good. Does that make sense? When we speak of God's goodness, his goodness is just. When we speak of God's justice, It is good because God is always good. God is always just. And his wrath is expressed whenever his good and righteous law is violated because it's totally against his character. If God were not just, he could be as arbitrary in his motives and as capricious in his actions as the very human gods of the Romans and the Greek pantheon. You know, the ones that look like they're just kind of superhumans with superhuman emotions and anger and pettiness and everything else. And we, if God were not just, he would be like that. But he's not that way. Or he could, if he were not just, he would be like our human leaders and even average people are. But our confidence, our boldness, our hope is in the just character and actions of God. And here are the surprising hopeful results. We might never see justice done in this world. But all the many wrongs and injustices people experience here will not escape his notice or his just sentence. This is our hope in the face of injustice, too powerful to resolve. Need I say, Ukraine? For God comes to judge the earth with righteousness. He will do the good and right thing. But notice, there is more to the day of the Lord than the final judgment by God. We are so accustomed to thinking of the day of of the Lord and the day of wrath as being something yet future, And it is true, as we've just been talking about, that God will come and he will judge the entire world with righteousness. He will bring every secret act to judgment. He will bring all of our careless words to judgment. All these things are spoken of in scripture. But the day of the Lord is not only future. Here are three passages from the Old Testament about the day of the Lord. Look at this. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Here's another one. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? All three of these passages speak of the day of the Lord, and all three of them refer to judgments that already occurred. These things took place during Old Testament history. So the day of the Lord is not just one future event. It is a multiplication of events that have taken place throughout history. The examples that we just looked at do give us a partial answer to the question, when is that day? Well, we can't just say sometime in the future, can we? We have to say that there are multiple times, past and future. The day of the Lord is another example of something you've heard around here a lot. Already, but not yet. The day of the Lord has already occurred against Babylon, against Judah, against Israel, and against other entities in the Old Testament. It's already taken place. But it's not yet complete. It won't be complete until the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord that we're speaking of in the passage we're looking at, will be yet future, and it will be the final consummation Of the days of the Lord that have already taken place. Here is how Keith Matheson explains it. The past destruction of Israel by Assyria in 722 and the destruction of Judah by Babylon are both instances of the day of the Lord, a day of decisive judgment. Both historical acts of judgment, however, also foreshadow the day of final judgment. Thankfully, our God does not wait until the very end of time to address all injustice. Do you see that? Because we've seen there are multiple days of the Lord. God intervenes in the history of his people. He does go to battle against his enemies. He destroyed Babylon. He sent Israel into exile. He sent Judah into exile. He destroyed the world with a flood at the time of Noah. All of these are instances of the day of the Lord, and yet none of them are universal. The flood was close, close second, but none of them are universal. That day of the Lord is coming, that final day, when all people of all races, all backgrounds, will be judged in righteousness. Here are two examples from the New Testament. God says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice the tense. I know it's getting a little technical, but the wrath of God is revealed. Not will be, is revealed. So you can see that this is something that's been going on against the human race ever since they rebelled against him. Or to get a little closer to where we are right now, just a couple chapters back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, He's talking to these Gentile believers and he says, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. What did the Jews do? They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them at last. Here he's talking about something that happened in the first century. At the time that the New Testament was being written, the Jewish people who had rejected Christ, crucified Christ, killed the prophets, and drove out the Christians and tried to prevent them from preaching the gospel, God says they filled up the measure of their sins and wrath has come upon them at last. If you're not familiar with it, you might want to read about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That was quite a cataclysm that took place at that time. And that was God's wrath being poured out upon that generation of the Jewish people who had been so rebellious that they crucified their own Messiah. The final judgment of all people and the earth is yet to come. Peter says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Sounds pretty final, right? It's like, is there a part two to that? <laughs> no, that, that is the final judgment that is to take place. Notice the things that I've highlighted there. The day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly and the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, look at what Paul says in verses 2 and 3 of First Thessalonians. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. You see the similarity in the language between what Peter was talking about and what Paul is talking about? This is a good indication that the day of the Lord that is mentioned in this passage is the final day of judgment that is coming. There is still a crucial aspect of the day of the Lord to consider. I stated earlier that we use the English expression day of the Lord instead of the Hebrew day of Yahweh. Why? I got to geek out a little bit here, so bear with me. It matters. When the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, the name Yahweh was replaced by the title Lord due to Jewish reverence for the divine name. That word Lord in the Greek language is Kyrios. This same Old Testament Greek translation was used by the New Testament writers and speakers. So, the day of the Lord was how they heard and spoke about a day of judgment. They, didn't, they wouldn't have said the day of Yahweh. They would have said the day of the Lord or the day of the Kyrios because that was the Greek translation that they understood. Passages which contain Yahweh in Hebrew were now expressed using Lord or Kyrios in Greek. And the point of all this is, these passages, the day of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord in Greek, these passages are applied in the New Testament to the Lord Jesus. And this is no accident. The divine rights of Yahweh in the Old Testament are attributed to Jesus as Lord in the New Testament. He is understood to be the God-man. So the day of Yahweh in Old Testament thought became the day of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And Jesus was specifically granted by the Father the divine rights of raising the dead, and judging all people, and was so proclaimed by his followers. Looking at the slide that we have here. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Those are Jesus' own words. He says, hey, I am now the judge. I am now the one who's going to raise everyone at the last day. And then Paul says the same thing. Look at Acts 17, 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Or when he talks to the Corinthians, he says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The transformation has taken place. What was called the day of Yahweh in the Old Testament in Hebrew is now the day of the Lord Jesus Christ who will be the judge of all men who will raise all of the dead. This is an amazing thing. This is why we're Christians and not Jewish people because the Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom God is working now for all the things that he's doing on earth. So this brings us to the most surprisingly hopeful aspect of God's judgment. His judgment involves more than the destruction of his enemies. It involves deliverance, the salvation of his people. Look at the definition of the day of the Lord one more time. The day of Yahweh would be the time when God as the great divine warrior would go into battle against his enemies, defeating them on behalf of his people. Look at what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's another passage where he says the name of the Lord. He's talking about Jesus. And yet if you were to look up that passage in the Old Testament, it's the name of Yahweh. Just one more indication, it's Jesus who's doing all of this. But he is coming to deliver his people. Our God is acting decisively to deliver those whose trust is in him so they can avoid the wrath to come. Look at these two passages from the book that we're in right now. In chapter one, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And in chapter 5, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So even though we're talking about the day of judgment, we're also talking about the day of salvation. We're talking about the reason that we are not destined for wrath because we have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Paul has a lot more to urge upon these young believers about their readiness for the coming judgment. But those details will have to wait until next week. (laughs) I know, you've never heard that before. Hopefully, We can see now how the day of the Lord has already begun, but is not yet fully consummated. There have been past judgments and deliverances, and there are present judgments and deliverances. Our God has shown us that he is just. And when the measure of a nation's or a people's sins is filled up, his long-suffering comes to an end, and judgment is executed even up to the present day. The final judgment, though yet future, will be executed by our Savior Jesus and will put an end to all injustice as he defines it, whether in our thoughts, our attitudes, our words, or our actions. This is great news for us. Ultimately, we don't have to bear the burden of trying to make all things right. It is his prerogative. But when? It's time to answer that question. Paul makes the question of when crystal clear. Look at what he says. Concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He says there's no reason for him to even write about it. They already knew the answer. But what was it that they knew perfectly well that no one knows? (laughs) There's such wisdom and such simplicity in this. And yet we have a tendency to say, but but when? (laughs) No one knows. Borrowing the language of the Lord Jesus, who talked about the times and the seasons, the when is described as like a thief in the night. Now, I'm terrible at illustrations. It's just not part of the way my mind works. So God has to give them to me. And he gave me an illustration, a rather unsettling one, of what it means for something to happen like a thief in the night. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were asleep. It was, I don't know, sometime middle of the night. And we were on the second story. So our windows are you know significantly up above the ground. And I'm suddenly awakened by hearing a scratching sound. Sounds like it's the window in our room. And I'm thinking, did we let the cat in or something? couldn't figure out what it was. And it was a little concerning because it was loud. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just dreaming. Maybe I'm imagining this. And then suddenly my wife sat straight up in bed. I went, okay. So we're both hearing this. What is it? Well, it was a bandit in the night. But the fact that it was a raccoon wasn't the scary part. It was the fact that it was so unexpected. It was the fact that it was a little terrifying because we didn't know what it was or who it was. And that's the point that Jesus is making. How does a thief in the night come? At an unknown time. Suddenly, unexpectedly, and unwelcomed Jesus himself described this in Matthew 24 therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming but know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into makes good sense right well What does it mean to stay awake (laughs) since the time is unknown? I'm just going to leave the the, passage with you. I'm not going to take the time to look at it now. But if you want to look at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48, Luke 12, 35 through 48. I'm not going to read it now. We're not going to talk about it. But that will help you to understand what it means to be awake and to be ready since the timing of the Lord's return is unknown. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 5 of Thessalonians, the unexpected nature of the day of the Lord is highlighted. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. This peace and security that he referred to It may have been a well-known slogan in the Roman Empire related to the Roman rulers' promises to their subjects. But whether this is true or not, that phrase describes both the desire of every human heart, right, and the claim of human military and political leaders through the centuries. I even heard this phrase, peace and security, during the past couple of weeks from our vice president. And did you know that peace and security is a literal part of the charter of the United Nations? So it's not like this is something that's only something that's happening today or something that only happened in the first century. It's what we all would wish for. And sometimes it may be partially experienced for a season, but it never lasts. Right, No mere human leader can guarantee peace and security, even though it is desirable to pursue them. Jesus alone is the Prince of Peace and our strong tower. Amen? Amen. When people place their confidence in humans rather than in God, their situation can become precarious as unexpectedly as labor pains strike a pregnant woman. Now, I've never been a pregnant woman, but I have seen what happens. And most of you have too. You know that it's coming eventually, but you have no idea when it's going to start. But once it has begun, the ultimate outcome is pretty much a given. With a pregnant woman, there's a baby that's coming soon these labor pains that he's talking about, he says, that's just as certain. They will not escape. Jesus illustrated this whole issue of being prepared or unprepared uh, again in Matthew 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's the danger. If you're not prepared, it can come as suddenly as the flood came upon the ancient world. And Noah was trying to prepare his world. You know, he's described in the New Testament as a preacher of righteousness. And he was building that ark for 120 years, and you know that his neighbors kind of noticed it. (laughs) Why are you building that thing? What is it for? Well, an old comedy routine says, I can't tell you. Ha, 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 ha. I know some of you know who that is. Well, could you give me a hint? You want a hint? How long can you tread water? Ha, 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 ha. But that's not the way Noah was. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was trying to warn the people of his day, and he had a rather large object lesson to prove it. There's a flood coming. God is going to destroy this world because of its wickedness. Repent. Turn away from your wickedness. Turn away from your violence. And the only people who entered that ark were Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. The rest of the world at that time was destroyed. Do you see how questions of when or timing fade in significance compared to the fearful and awesome coming of our king to judge the earth, all of us included. Jesus gives us the final word on this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Preoccupation by Christians with times and seasons, promoting date setting, and searching current events as signs should be replaced by what Jesus said here, promoting the gospel of Jesus among all nations. For those of us listening to the word of God today, the solemn nature of the judgment of the day of the Lord calls for action. Going back to what Paul said in chapter one. Whoa! What you need to do if you're listening today and you don't have a real personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he outlines it right there. Turn to God from your idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come you will either ultimately bow before him as the one who delivers you from the wrath to come or you will face him as the righteous judge. If you are concerned about your purpose and your future and you should be, there will be elders up here afterwards who would love to discuss this concern further. If you are a follower of Jesus already, Be hopeful about the day of the Lord. Not only because you are not destined to wrath, but because the justice of the judge of all the earth guarantees that all wrongs will be properly and completely dealt with. No criminal act, no ongoing miscarriage of justice, no cruel and undeserved destruction of human life and property like is happening in Ukraine. No outrageous instance of privilege or partiality or corruption here is going to go unnoticed or unpunished. And our judge is not only righteous and good, he is also all-powerful and all-knowing. So his ability to know every human heart and the lack of any limitation upon his power guarantee the final outcome. Be hopeful. Jesus is coming.